First Peter chapter 2. I don't know if you guys saw any video from yesterday. There was a prayer march in Washington. Anyone see that? That was pretty neat. And actually, that song, the last song we sang right there, I don't know if you saw a video of that, but you had, I don't know how many people were there. Does anybody know how many people showed up? There was thousands and thousands. I mean, you saw it all stretch out. And someone was on a piano, and uh, they sang that song. And all those people, throngs of people singing that. It was, it was pretty amazing Not to see that. We're walking through 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're in the middle of our sermon series, started in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. And our series is titled, How to Glorify God with Your Life While You Suffer. The last two weeks, we dealt with verses 13 and, and through 17. We spoke about how to glorify God while we're living under a human government. And then these next two weeks, we're going to speak about, from chapter uh, 2, verses 18 through 25, about how to glorify God as we work and live in the economic situation that God has placed us in. In your bulletin, you'll see an outline. You can pull that out, and you can take notes if you'd like to. And the question you can see on that outline that we're asking is, in this text, of this text, is how do we glorify God while we work, and sometimes within the context of our work, we suffer unjustly for the name of Christ. And you can see on the outline there, there's three answers we're going to find in our text. First, how do we glorify God? We submit to human authority. We'll see that in verse 18. Then second, we endure suffering as God's servant. We'll see that in verses 19 and 20. And then next week, we'll deal with the example of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. So let's first look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's read verses 18 through verses, verse 21. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you... If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you endure, I'm sorry, but, wi- but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Let's pray. We believe, Father, that this is the Holy Word of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us, for for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that we can be the mature believers that you want us to to be. So mature us today in the Word, through your holy words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joe was a teenager who had his whole life in front of him. Joe had great talent and optimism. He had faith in God. He dreamed of greatness and God using his life in a remarkable way. And so as he looked out at his life at the age of 17 years old, Joe thought, that he could do anything as long as God was with him. 
And it seemed that way until he faced the wrath of his family. His brothers hated him. They constantly mocked him, belittled him, put him down. Eventually they decided they just wanted to get rid of him. So they actually kidnapped him and sold him as a slave. And he was shipped off in shackles. He was put in the auction block and a wealthy military general bought him. And so here's Joe, a believer in God, far from his home, missing his family. And he's a slave. What's he to do? What did Joe do? He endured hardship. He missed his family, but he served God with integrity. He worked hard. In fact, so much so that he, he did good to that family and to that master. And that master actually put him in charge of the whole house. Then he was falsely accused. And he got thrown in prison. He's following God. What's he to do? Well, he decided to, to do good to the prisoners and to the prison guards. And, and eventually he was able to do good to the king. And the king brought him out and he set him a second in command of the whole kingdom. Who is this Joe? Joseph, right, in Genesis. This is a true story of a man who suffered unjustly. He endured And through his suffering, he decided he was going to trust God, do good. And as a result, we tell a story about Joseph that brings God glory. What a great example Joseph is to us, really, of this text of Scripture we're looking at here this morning. How do we bring glory to God while we suffer, even if it's unjustly, even if it's in the lowest position, like a slave or or someone in prison like Joseph was? Well, the Bible teaches us in verse 18, That first of all, we bring glory to God when we're subject to human authority. Even the lowest position in society is to submit to their authority. So look at verse 18. He says, servants, be subject to your masters. Verse 18 really transitions us from speaking about human government and being subject in the, the context of human government to being subject in the context of the economic workforce. In, in most economies, there's some type of boss and employee relationship. In this particular economic system, we're speaking of really the lowest and probably worst and most debased system that's out there, and that is the master and slave relationship. And the, what's presented here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, is that even in this, this in some sense, wicked type of economic system, even a slave is to submit to his master. Notice the word in verse 18, be subject, is the same word you find up in verse uh, 13. Remember we said that word is a compound Greek word, which is hupo, which means under, and tasso, which means to put in order. So the idea is this, that you arrange yourself under an order of authority. And so for the government, God ordains government. So therefore, we are to to put ourselves under the authority of the government. So logically, someone might come to this text and they might say, well, does that mean, does that mean if God ordained government, does that mean God ordained slavery? What's the answer to that? Absolutely not. Absolutely, categorically, no. That's not true. There's nowhere in the Bible where slavery is commended or encouraged. What is commended for us is to work, to get a job, to labor, so we can give back to the Lord. Slavery is not God's idea. It's never celebrated in the scripture. God ordained work, though. In fact, before the fall, when, when God created 
what we see around us here, this beautiful world, before sin cursed it, Genesis 3.15, the Bible says, The Lord God took man, that's Adam, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So actually, if you have some type of job or employment, that's a gift from God. It's a blessing. That's not a curse upon us. God actually wants us to work. It's a good thing. We have many people who have jobs here, right? Many different types of jobs. What are some of the jobs we have out here? We have some engineers, maybe. We have some garbage collectors. Any garbage collectors out here? Politicians, any politicians out here? Sometimes they seem like the same thing. Yeah, electricians, firefighters, landscapers. Yeah, that's a slam on the politicians, not the garbage collectors, by the way. You got fruit pickers. You got police officers, praise God for that. Housekeepers. You got food preparers, teachers, so on, right? And let's not forget, and this one right here, moms. Amen? I remember someone said to me once, they said, because moms are basically all the above. (laughs) I remember someone said to me once, this is a long time ago, but they said, oh, your wife, because she doesn't work. And I was like, what? (laughs) I'm like, she's a teacher. She's a police officer. (laughs) She's an interior decorator. She's a cook. She's an accountant. She's a nurse. She's a politician. She's, I mean, let's not say that, okay? They just don't get their reward until they get to heaven. They get some on earth, but no financial reward, that's for certain. So, so God gives us the gift of labor, and he actually gives it to us, the Bible teaches, so we can give back. Most importantly, first of all, we give the first fruits of what God has given us in worship to him. So that's why we have a box back there, so you can worship God with your, with your giving, And we're to provide for our family with that. And then we're to give to others. Listen to this. Ephesians 2.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Get a job. Why? So he can do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who has need. The purpose of your job isn't so you can go to Disneyland every weekend, right? It's actually so we can give to those who have need. So my point is, is God gave us this good gift of employment, of work. Work is a result of God's good creation and his good order. Slavery, slavery actually is a result of the curse. It's actually a twisting of what God has given to us. It's a twisting of God's goodness. It's a distortion. One apologist that I was listening to about this, he was saying that when he goes on college campuses, one of the top five questions that he answers in public universities is this question right here, what does the Bible say about slavery? The truth is, I could do a whole sermon on this, and I probably maybe should someday, but that's not what I'm doing this text today. But I, I think it's important for us to do a little bit of an overview and just to generally say, what does the Bible teach about it? The Old Testament national laws, they actually did permit slavery. They actually regulated slavery. In the Old Testament, it's never encouraged. Um, and actually, there's, there's strict restrictions against abuse. Uh, in some instances, there are people in that part of the world, in that society, who they didn't have a job, they were poor, they were going to starve, so they would sell themselves to work for someone else as a servant. Uh, sometimes someone would have a debt to someone they couldn't pay off, so instead of going to prison, they would basically serve that person. And, and if you know the Old Testament uh, very well. You know that freedom was actually encouraged and mandated. Every six years, Hebrew slaves had to be set free, 
right? And then actually, even with that, the masters had to give them some funds to be able to ha help them support themselves after that. So if you look at the Old Testament, actually, you see these regulations and this actually this idea that uh, a person who is a slave actually has dignity and worth, and they're actually to uh, be encouraging freedom. And so the Old Testament national laws actually were very, very counterculture to the rest of the world who were enslaving people and treating them as if they were just a piece of property like a dog. And then in the New Testament, the Romans, they ruled that part of the world. They, some estimate that between 50% and 80% of the Roman population were slaves. It kind of depends on where in the Roman Empire you were. That's kind of why that differs right there. But the point is, when you think of the Roman Empire and you think of these churches, you sh should probably be thinking that the majority of these churches are filled with people who are slaves. Because the majority of those who are in the labor force in the Roman Empire were slaves. And, and when you think of that, don't think of the, the American slave trade, which was based upon race and, um, and how all that went down. This was actually their, their full economic system. The middle class and lower class, it was generally people who were slaves. So some were forced to work in mines and fields. Some, some sold themselves into slavery so they could provide for their family. Some slaves owned slaves. Some slaves served as doctors, some served as teachers, some as musicians, some as artists. According to PBS, I was reading a PBS article, and, and many slaves actually were set free. In fact, so much so that some of the Roman um, uh, Caesars actually got concerned about that because there's too many slaves being set free, and so they tried to stop that. But slavery was the economic system of that uh, Roman Empire. It was cruel. It was terrible. It's wicked. It's not something God wanted but it is what it was i mean that's what they did it's hard for us and we we can sometimes take our american context and freedom that we have in america and apply it to that and say well why did why did that happen there that shouldn't happen well that was the context that they were in so when peter's writing this letter he's writing probably to a majority of the churches that are full of slaves now when paul and peter wrote to these slaves and to these churches they actually took what many people thought in the Roman Empire as of people who had really no worth or they were just owned a piece of property, slave, and they actually elevated them. In fact, if you read Colossians 3.11, the Bible says, Peter, Paul says, I should say, Paul says that there's neither Greek nor Jew, and then he says neither slave nor free. So in the church, actually, the master and the slave were equal. In Christ, you're equal. Now, when you go back to your job, obviously, obviously there's a different order of authority. But in the church, there's equality. In fact, when Paul wrote a master, a slave owner, Philemon, he actually said, like, that slave is a brother in Christ. And in the church, he's equal to you. And actually, the right thing to do is to free him. So my point is, is that the, the Bible teaches the principles of equality of personhood for all people. In fact, I would say this. This is something that is not taught in public universities and generally not taught in the society we live in, but these biblical principles were seeds that were planted in culture, and the freedoms we have today are because of what Paul was, which really was a revolutionary. I mean, the, the, these writings are revolutionary. We look at them now like, oh, well, why would he say that about that? It was revolutionary to say something like that. But England and America, we experienced the freedom of slavery the rights for women to own property and vote, the education of children, the abolition, abolition of child labor, and so on, because of this right here. Like, women, you're going to be voting, in, hopefully, in a couple weeks, right? 
you have that because of biblical principles of freedom that we found in the scripture. In my prayer, and Lord willing, these same seeds of truth will give rise to the elimination of abortion, right? So the question you have, though, when you see this, like, why didn't Paul or Peter, when they wrote to these churches, why didn't they, why weren't they calling for social reform, the abolition of slavery? And I would say there's a number of reasons, but number one, God is most concerned with heart reform, not social reform. And social reform, frankly, doesn't happen until there's heart reform. <laughs> so here he's going towards the heart. So how do you glorify God in your heart, when you work, in a situation, whatever situation you are in? First of all, submit in the context that God has placed you. He says, so servants, he doesn't say rebel, get out of it. He says, no, be subject. This is where God has placed you. Now, let me ask a question. Should a slave seek freedom? Should he? Well, the Bible actually talks about this. I'm not going to go through this, but just throw this out. 1 Corinthians 7.21. You can look this up. Some had the question, well, I'm a Christian now, so now I'm free, right? I don't have to be a slave anymore. And he says, Paul says, were you a bond servant when called or when you became a believer? Don't be concerned about it. Go ahead. You can stay a servant and still be a Christian and still serve God. But if you, gain, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, he was saying, like, if you can gain your freedom and some were able to, then do it. You know, if you can change your economic situation, if you have a job you don't like, try to change your economic situation. That's actually okay to do. But then he says in verse 24 of that same chapter, but whatever condition in which you were called, in other words, whatever you found yourself, whether you were single or, or married, or and he's talking about all those different situations, or whether you were bond or free, whatever you, but you can remain there with God and trust God. In other words, there, there are times when you can't change your, your situation, right? There's no way for you to change whether the economic or relational situation that you're in. So your response isn't to rebel. It shouldn't be to rebel. It shouldn't be to, it shouldn't be to complain or to say, I quit. I'm just done with this. Those, those are sinful responses we have to problems and to pressure. But we trust God. First, we say, God, I submit to you. And God, you place me in this context. Therefore, the person that you put over me at this time, I'm going to be subject to them. So from the lowest position, whether it be a slave to the highest position, right? Mike Pence, who should he submit himself to? The president, right? Vice president, president. And so whether from the lowest to the highest students, we should submit yourself to your teachers in the context of the classroom. Secretaries, do all you can to support and enable your bosses. Bosses, serve your company. I mean, think about the, the person or persons above you. And then consider, how should you obey Christ in that context? And that's what he's calling us to do here. The problem we have is that our hearts naturally are bent to be independent, aren't they? It's fashionable in our society to defy government, to cast off the authority of churches and elders, to live in rebellion to parents, to subvert bo bosses and try to bring them down. But those attitudes right there are actually satanic. They're selfish. They're prideful. They're wicked. That's not the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ is a heart of humility that lives under the authority of Christ and under the authorities he places in our life. So how do we bring glory to God? We submit to those authorities he's put over us. And then secondly, we submit because of our relationship to 
God. Look at verse 18. He says, be subject, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. You might have a translation that says, with all fear. Probably a better translation to use that because that word there, fear, is actually the same root word you see in verse number 17 where it says we are to fear God. So is Peter directing us here to fear the masters? The answer is no. He's not saying you should fear the master or fear the authority. He's actually speaking of fearing God. And you're like, well, Pastor Ben, how do you know that? Well, first of all, he just said fear God. So now he's speaking of that one more time. Go back to chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Peter 1, 17, you can see in the middle of that verse, he instructs us to conduct yourselves with fear. And in that context, it's the fear of the Father, fear of God. Look over in chapter 3, verse 14. Here, he's speaking about people who, who bring suffering upon you. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Listen, have no fear of them. And in this context, actually, that could include your bosses, right? In other words, you're not to fear people. Who, we, who do we fear? We fear God. And, and when we talk about fear, we're talking about reverence and awe and, and really worship of God. And what I think he's teaching here is that we are to work in such a way that we actually view our work as worship. And we came here, we're singing, we're listening to Pastor Roger do the scripture reading, we're praying together, we're worshiping, we're concentrating on Jesus and what he's done for us, and we're celebrating that. You should take that same attitude with you to school or to work, where you actually view what you're doing as worship. You're not worshiping your boss or worshiping your job, right? That's actually idolatry. You shouldn't do that. But you're, you're saying, I am coming to this job and everything I'm doing, every, my, every thought, every word, every action is actually for you, God. I'm in fear of you. I'm worshiping you. And so therefore, that's why I submit to the government or to the boss I have in my workplace. I remember working after... Well, when I was in college, and then when I graduated from college as well, I was working for a granite company, and we did granite installation in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And when I, when I first came on the job, I was the only born-again Christian in that entire business and entire company. And the first day, uh, they recognized something was wrong with me because I didn't use the F word every other sentence. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been in that kind of work environment? Most of the men there smoked all day and drank all night. This was Wisconsin, by the way, so if you, uh, if you know Wisconsin, I don't think people really do that as much here. Maybe they do. Who knows? Yeah, someone says, yeah, right. Maybe that's what it is. You know, so they came in with a hangover every morning and whatever. And most of the guys, and most of the guys I was with, actually, we had a great relationship. They respected me, um, I think partly because I worked hard and I sought to do the best I could. Um, usually every hour-ish, they would take a smoke break. And I just kept working because I obviously didn't have any smokes that I wanted to smoke. And, uh, and usually right in the morning, I'd get to work where some of them were still, you know, trying to get over their headache from the day before, from the night before. I had a boss over me. His name was Pat. And I had a great relationship with him, too, I think generally because he could count on me. I, I tried to work hard for him. But there was this, and I can remember, let me back up and say this. I can remember driving to work, getting up really early in the morning. It's dark outside. I listened to the pastor that I was 
was my pastor at the time. His name was uh, Dean Taylor, and he was in the radio, and I listened to him. And I remember praying on the way to work and being like, I actually want to be a pastor. I don't really want to be doing this. But thinking to myself, but this is what you've put me in, Lord. And I can remember many times praying, God, please have this happen, but this is where you've put me. And so I pray you'll help me, help me to do this for you today. And definitely I needed it. I had a boss that was over my other, my boss, he was over Pat. He was the kind of guy that got the position because his, his friend was the owner of the company. You know what I'm talking about? His competency just wasn't there. So what he did was he walked around and tried to find problems so he could have a job. And I happened to be his problem. And so there was many times where he would, you know, he had definitely had an eagle eye on me. One time I was outside and I was looking at some granite and I was trying to pick out a certain uh, piece of granite and find it. He thought I was just out there wandering around, you know, so he comes out and he just laid into me, yelled at me, put his finger in my face. And, uh, and honestly, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, my, bo- my other boss told me to do this. So I listened, let him yell. When he was done, I said, you know, it might be good for you to go talk to Pat and ask him what, you know, he asked me to do because he told me to come out here and do this. And my point is, how do you respond to someone like that? How do you respond to a boss like that? It's easy to be like, to go back to the shop and say, that guy, isn't he driving you nuts? You know, does he do that to anyone else here? To talk negatively about him or try to subvert him, you know, to be like, this guy doesn't, he's incompetent. You know, let's, let's go tell the company owner. Does he know how incompetent this guy? It's easy to not want to submit to them and to follow your own heart or to say, when can I get done with this guy? Like every time I see him, so, so what's the proper response? Well, we're to be subject to even bosses like that. But you say, well, he doesn't have very good character, Pastor Ben. But what does verse 18 say? Really, no matter the character of your authority, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That means the unfair. And, and like with human government, if your boss is trying to get you to do something that's sinful against God, obey God. Don't obey your boss in that. But in everything else, you must submit to the Lord, and to your boss. And how do we glorify God when we work in the context and sometimes we suffer? The next part is we endure. So we submit and then we endure suffering as God's servant. And in verse 19, Peter transitions from using servants as examples of how we are to submit to our authorities to the whole church. Really, how are we all to face unjust suffering, not just in the workplace. I think it even extends beyond that. So look at verses 19 through 20, and I'm going to read this and see if you can find the key verbs in this, in these two verses here. So verse 19 says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So what, was the, what are the key verbs there? It's the word endure, right? How do we glorify God when we're under the pressure of, of suffering, maybe unjustly, we endure? And he, and he gives a little bit of a qualification. He makes a distinction. Like if you're suffering because of your sins or something that you've done that's wrong, then then don't complain about that. There's no credit in that for you. If you get fired from your job because you're lazy or you lied, well, you're facing your own consequences for your sins. I think about uh, the prodigal son. I think about the prodigal son and how he, you know, he left his father and took his money and you know, spent his money on his friends and his, his fun. At some point in his 
life there, he got to the place where he came to the end of himself and found himself sitting with the swine, living with them, eating with them, and his whole life was ruined. You kind of wonder if there was some point there when he was coming to that place where you know all his money's gone, all his friends are gone. He's thinking about the, the bed he used to sleep in back at his dad's mansion with his brother. And you kind of wonder, the Bible doesn't say this, but if he ever thought to himself, man, I left that home because my brother was treated better than me. You know, and my friends, they spent all my money. Like, I would have money if they didn't. Like, and you, it, you, sometimes people can have that mindset. When they have problems, it's like they blame everybody else. Well, I got fired from that job because of this person, and I had this happening because of this person. And they're always pointing fingers. But what God wants us to do is really what happened to the prodigal son. Come to the place where you go, wait a second. I've sinned against God. That's, he said, heaven, heaven, and against my father. And you recognize, actually, it's my own deceitful heart and depravity and destruction that has caused the pain in my life. So if you have pain, you need to go actually ask yourself, is it because of sin? And if it's because of sin, you need to repent and turn from that sin. So don't be complaining to other people about your suffering when you have, are facing just the consequences of your own sin. That's what he's talking about. Verse 20. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? There's no credit. But as a Christian, sometimes we face suffering because of Christian conduct or because, because we have the name Christian. So what should we do? Or we are to endure. And the word endure is very interesting too. It's a compound word again in the Greek. And it starts with the word hupo, which means what? Under. And meno, which means remain. So the directive here is to, in suffering is to remain under. Remain under. So he says, look at verse 19 and 20. Let me just think about this as I read this with this understanding of this word. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one remains under sorrows while suffering unjustly. Skip to the middle of the verse. But, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you remain under, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So so God wants us during suffering to do good and remain under that, that suffering. So how do you glorify God when you suffer unjustly? First point is endure and do good while suffering unjustly. So I need a volunteer. Isaac, you want to help me up here? That's, a, that's the great thing about being a pastor's kid <clears throat> is you get to volunteer. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's okay. I have another volunteer. It's coming up later. So he doesn't know yet, though. Okay, come on over here, Isaac. <clears throat> So I want you to stand right here. I want you to stand right over here. That way I can see my notes still. Okay, Isaac, he's going to be all of you right now. So if you're a Christian, so he's going to be a Christian. He's going to be married. Are you married? No. No. Okay, we're going to pretend he's married. He's got a couple kids at home. He's got a job. He works real hard, don't you? Okay, so that's, this, is, this is you right here. And he's, he's living his life for Christ. And he has some hard things happen in his life. First of all, his wife breaks her ankle. That's pretty hard, isn't it? So there's, there's, here's pressure upon Isaac here. That's a really hard thing. Now you've got to do the dishes yourself, and you've got to make your own bed and take care of her. Then his boss hasn't given him a, a, a raise and hasn't given him a promotion in two years. And that's real hard, isn't it? His coworker, he keeps coming against him and like subverting him. A member of his church was unloving and said something like, hope you break a leg. How unloving when his wife broke her leg, right? The government is mandating that everything is closed, and so his gym is closed, and now he's getting a little fat. 
He's got to wear a mask to work. I mean, he's feeling the pressure from everywhere, right? And his friends are all texting him and saying, you should just leave California. Like, it's not fun here anymore. You should come where we are. We're in Idaho. <laughs> right? So that's, he's under a lot of pressure. Now, let me ask this question. Isaac, what do you feel like doing right now? Yeah, or, or getting out, right? Isn't that, oh, <laughs> sorry about that. He's my son, I can do that. But you feel like getting out, right? Like that's, that's the point, is that you have these pressures that come upon you and they push down. And the idea is that you have suffering that's coming upon you. What does God want you to do as a Christian? Remain under. That's the picture here. It's, it's, the answer is not, I've got to escape. I've got to get out of this. The answer is, I've got to remain under, and while I'm doing it, I'm trusting God, and I'm doing good. And, and with the temptation you can have in this situation is you can think, man, I, marriage is hard. i just got to get out of my marriage. Now, I, I, I'm having problems in my church. i just got to find a new church. I'm, my job is terrible. i just got to quit my job. I'm quitting tomorrow. <laughs> I'm done with this job. I've got to get away from this state. Like, these people are crazy out here. Like, i got to find, yeah, well, that might be true, but that's not the answer, right? i, I got to get a life that's easier and that's less painful, and how can I escape all of this? Stay right here, okay, buddy? And I don't want you to get me wrong. It's not that we want to invite pain into our life, not at all. But God's glory, as I said a couple weeks ago, God's glory shines the brightest when things are the darkest. God's grace is most evident when we are the weakest, and the, the solution to suffering it isn't just to work to get out of it. How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? I got to get out of this. I got to get out of this. It's not the solution, the Christian solution to suffering. It's actually found here in this verse where he says that we are to do good and we are to remain under. And so the question you have when you're under this is not to say, how can I get out? It's like, what does God want me to do while I'm under this suffering? So your, your wife broke her ankle and you say, okay, how can I serve my wife and my family? Your boss hasn't given you a promotion. You say, okay, how can I do good? How can I keep working hard in this job? Your coworker keeps coming after you. You say, I'm just going to keep doing the job that I'm supposed to do here. Your church member says something unloving. Maybe you seek to be loving back to them or have a conversation with them, but you say, I'm just going to do good to them and endure. The government in California is making some crazy mandates. What should you do? Vote. Amen? Okay. Vote. But you know what? Keep serving Christ. Keep serving Christ. Stay right there, buddy. Keep serving Christ. So how do you bring glory to God while you suffer unjustly? Endure while doing good, and then endure with conscience to God. Conscience to God. Okay, take a seat. I'll, I'll call you up in just a second again. Look at verse 19. He says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So you're mindful of God actually is, is the word for conscience. Of course, if you know what the word conscience means, it's with knowledge. And so the idea is you have knowledge that's informing your mind. So, so what knowledge are we to inform our minds with when we're under the pressure? What's the knowledge we should think on? Well, we're mindful of what? Of God, right? I mean, you, you could almost even say this is speaking of faith, like you're trusting God. It's like you're doing this and you're thinking while you're working, while you're suffering, God, I'm I'm here because you have put me here. God, I'm, I'm trusting in your strength. You're the sovereign. I'm your servant. I'm going to do the best I can for you. And it's this idea of faith, praying to God. So Isaac, come back up here. Okay, and I need, uh, let's see here. Paul Patingo, are you around here? Okay. 
That's great. You're going to be Jesus for us. There we go. So I'm, I'm going to press you down, Isaac, with a lot of things, and, uh, and you're going to hold on to Paul. And Paul, here's what you're going to do. You're not going to let him go down. I'm going to push him down, but you're not going to let him go down. You're going to hold him up, okay? So Isaac, you hold on to Paul. Hold on to him. You better hold on tighter than that. Oh, here you go. Ready? Here we go. I'm going to push him down. You think I can do it? Oh, this, that's some pipes right there. Okay, here we go. Okay, go ahead. You guys can take a seat. Take a seat. And, and the point is this. It's not just that he's trying to stand up in his own strength. It's not like, oh, okay, I can do it. It's like he's holding on to Christ, right? We're holding on to Christ, and he's holding on to us. That's what being mindful of God. It's like I'm not in this on my own. I'm holding on to him. He's my strength. And then last, how do we glorify God when we suffer? We endure in hope of grace, in hope of grace. Notice the inclusio there found in verses 19 and 20. So verse 19 starts with literally, this is grace. And then verse 20 ends with, you could literally translate this way, this is grace from God. So it starts off by saying, this is grace from God. And the end says, this is grace from God. And so what is the this in there? Well, it's enduring suffering while doing good. And so what, what he's saying here, if you look at verse 19, he's saying, this is a gracious, like this is grace from God. When we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. In verse 20, look at the middle of that. When we do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Or this is grace from God. So God's giving us some kind of grace. Now what is grace? Grace is God's work for us that we don't deserve, right? And we all experience grace. There's common grace that, that you're breathing right now because of that. Okay, so everyone take a breath. Okay, there you go. That breath was God's common grace for you to live and breathe and enjoy this world. There's saving grace, which saves us from our sins. It makes us a child of God. So if you're a Christian, say amen. Okay, so there, you're a person who has experienced saving grace. There's sustaining grace. You got this morning, you thought, I can't do this any longer. Jesus, help me. Give me your grace. You got sustaining grace. Then there's this future grace. Future grace promises the hope of heaven and the eternal presence of God. So which grace is this? It says, this is grace. God's given you grace. So what, what grace is this? Well, I believe this is future grace. And honestly, again, it's one of those things where you study so much and you can't share it all. <laughs> and, but there's so many reasons I have for why I believe this. But I'll just quickly give you three, and then you can study it on your own if you want to. Number one, grace, found in verse 19, is actually presented as a synonym of credit in verse 20. So grace and credit are presented as parallels, as synonyms for each other. Second, in verse 21, we're going to see next week, Jesus, he suffered as an example, and he endured. He did good for us. While he was doing it, he looked with the future in mind, for future hope. So he's our example of that. And then third, Peter, where did he get this doctrine from? Like, where did he learn all this from? Well, from Jesus. And Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter, uh, no, Matthew chapter 5, what we read this morning, and Luke chapter 6, he taught on this right here. And so what I believe Peter is doing is he's teaching what Jesus taught. And so if you were to study Luke chapter 6, verses 32, well, there goes our geese. Man, too bad I didn't you have a gun with you, huh? Could have had lunch. I guess that's only what they say in South Carolina. I'm sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> sorry about that for all you uh, geese lovers out there. 
But if you, if you looked at Matt, uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus says, he says, if you love those who benefit, and over and over, he uses that word, benefit and credit, and actually it's the same word as grace. So you could say it like this, if you love those who love you, what grace is that for you? And over and over, he says, like, you know, there's not, there's not grace for you if you just act like the world. And then the very end of his teaching there on this loving your enemies and doing good to them, he says, love your enemies, in verse 35, Luke 6, 35, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in your return, and your reward will be great. So my point is this, is that Jesus was saying, you, you suffer in this world, and you love people, and you endure for the, the hope of future grace, future reward. So going back to this text here, right here, we endure hardship, we do good, and we're looking for future grace. We're looking for Christ and his presence and his return. It's like we're under that pressure. Christ is holding on to us. We're holding on to him. And it's, we're recognizing this. It's only for a little time. You know what? You're not going to live in California forever because you're going to die soon, right? Or Christ could come back. Either way, it's only a little bit of time compared to everything else. The same thing with all the difficulties and all the trials you go through. It's only for a time, but soon grace, future grace will come. We'll be with Christ and we'll enjoy eternity forever. And, and I think so, someone like Joseph who didn't experience that future grace until really he had a taste of it on earth when he was gathered with his brothers. They were forgiven. He saw his father again, and he said, you meant it for evil, brothers, but God meant it for good. It's a taste of that grace, and then the full taste of it when he went to glory. I mean, I would say this way, there's a a sense where he actually got to experience some of that future grace on earth, and sometimes, honestly, you do good, you suffer, and you can experience some positive benefits. Honestly, sometimes you don't. You know, Stephen was a deacon in the Bible, and the first martyr, Acts 6 and 7 talks about this. And here's a guy who's serving widows, who's preaching the gospel. And the first least, least time we know he preached the gospel, he gets up and they come and stone him. You know, They take rocks and crush his body and he dies bleeding. But what did he do when that happened? You need to look at his wounds and go like, oh, that's a really bad one. He looked to heaven and he says, Lord Jesus, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he prayed for those around him. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Full of the Holy Spirit, he looked for that future grace. I read this about Stephen. Someone said this, far better to die with Stephen under the hail of rocks and suffering, enduring the crushing of our skulls and be welcomed into heaven by the risen Lord than to die peacefully in the midst of worldly comforts, surrounded by family, and then only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Better to endure, to do good, to look to future grace, and to live for Christ than to live for yourself. And always seek, how do I get out from under this? How do I get out from under this? And then wake up, and glo- wait up, wake up before the Savior and realize that your eternity is going to be separate from him forever. So what should you do? Are you facing suffering? Are you facing suffering unjustly? Submit, obey Christ in the context that you find yourself. If you're not doing that, you need to confess that to the Lord. Bring it to him. Ask, you, ask him to forgive you and enable you to do what's right. And then endure while doing 
good, being mindful of God, looking for that future grace. I want to end with a song. If you have uh, one of those papers you picked up, it has the music on there. And the song speaks about Christ, the sure and steady anchor. You might not know this song, probably don't. I'll go ahead and ask the music team to come on up here. And as I was preparing this message yesterday, I just this song is a song I've listened to and it's kept coming back to my mind. And the picture is of a person who's facing the, the winds of trials and difficulties and they're in that ship and they're getting beat up, but they have the anchor out. It's, it's deep down and they're holding on to that anchor. And of course, that anchor here is Jesus Christ. If you look at the words, it says, Christ, the sure and steady anchor. In the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering and the sorrows, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. That's Jesus Christ. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless, somehow, oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. All my hope is in the anchor, it shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon clouds behind and life secured and the calm will will be the better for the storms that we endured christ the shore of our salvation ever faithful ever true we will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be removed this is the song that we can sing to christ we can hold on to him if you're going through something right now this might be a song that you sing out to christ jesus christ you are the anchor of our life Father, you're the sovereign overseeing all of it. Holy Spirit, you empower us to endure. I pray for our church as we face suffering in many different ways. I pray we'll hold fast to Christ, the anchor of our souls. May we endure, remain under, and do good. We look forward to seeing you. Lord Jesus, wouldn't it be wonderful right now if you came back for us? That's our longing. That's our desire. But we work now. We work now. We as Christians want to be the most industrious, hardest working people on this planet because we are working for you, Jesus. And we look forward to seeing you in that hope of future grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.